0: Tell your friends, family, neighbors, colleagues, maybe even strangers, to listen to. This week we're discussing the one and only fashion show ever held at the White House, hosted on February twenty ninth, nineteen sixty eight, by Lady Bird Johnson, Claudia Lady Bird Taylor was born in Karnak, Texas, on December 22, 1912. In 1934, she met then-Congressional aide, Lyndon Baines Johnson, in Austin, and in less than a year, they were married. When LBJ first ran for Congress, in a special election in 1937, Lady Bird supported him with $10,000 from her inheritance. When LBJ was called up to active duty in the Navy three days after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Lady Bird ran his congressional office. In 1960, John F. Kennedy tapped LBJ, who was by then Senate Majority Leader, to be his vice presidential running mate. Jackie Kennedy was pregnant with their second child. So Lady Bird played a large role in the campaign, traveling 35,000 miles and appearing at 150 events in 71 days. By this time, Lady Bird was also a successful businesswoman, having purchased a radio and TV station with her inheritance, which made the Johnsons millionaires. When President Kennedy was shot in Dallas, Texas, On November 22nd, 1963, the Johnsons were two cars behind the Kennedys in the motorcade. Just two hours after Kennedy died, LBJ was sworn in as president. Lady Bird later remembered saying to Jackie, Oh, Mrs. Kennedy, you know we never even wanted to be vice president, and now, dear God, it's come to this. From November 1963 until Hubert Humphrey was sworn in as vice president on January 20th, 1965, LBJ had no official vice president, and Lady Bird stood in as the de facto VP during the period that included the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the Economic Opportunity Act of 1964. With everything she had going on, perhaps it's not surprising that Lady Bird thought fashion was too frou frou. Noting in her diary in 1967, I must have had a Puritan ancestor because I always have a sort of guilty, silly feeling when I have to make a big production of making up. But when she suddenly became First Lady, she had no choice but to pay attention to fashion. As a Women's Wear Daily headline put it, the eyes of fashion are upon her. Even so, hosting a fashion show at the White House was not her highest priority. That idea was the brainchild of journalist Nancy Dickerson, White House Social Secretary Bess Abel, and fashion publicist Eleanor Lambert. The founder of New York Fashion Week, Bess Abel convinced Lady Bird of the importance of celebrating fashion, which was then the fourth largest industry in the United States. They planned the february twenty ninth nineteen sixty eight event to coincide with the National Governor's Conference and invited the governor's wives to attend the luncheon show titled, How to Discover America in Style. The theme reflected both the administration's push to encourage domestic tourism and Lady Bird's project of highway beautification. In her words, quote, Though the word beautification makes the concept sound merely cosmetic it involves much more. Clean water, clean air, clean roadsides, safe waste disposal, and preservation of valued old landmarks, as well as great parks and wilderness areas. To me, beautification means our total concern for the physical and human quality we pass on to our children and the future, Unquote. While Abel and Lady Bird's press secretary, Liz Carpenter, handled the complicated logistics of planning a fashion show in the White House on just a few weeks' notice, an advisory committee of fashion editors called through some 400 designs from the spring collections of American designers to select 50 outfits to showcase. Unsurprisingly, they ended up showing 88 designs by 60 designers on the runway at a brisk pace. The fashion show was held in the state dining room, where the governor's wives and other guests, including many of the designers themselves, dined on Consomme White House, Chicken Curry Columbus, Arbor Rice, and Spring Greens. After Lady Bird's opening remarks, she turned things over to Nancy White, the editor of Harper's Bazaar, who narrated the show, which fittingly began with the U.S. Marine Band playing a John Philip Sousa march. As slides of U.S. landmarks, like the Grand Canyon, displayed behind them, the models walked the 600-foot borrowed runway. The show was divided into four segments red, white, and blue, travel fashions, festival fashions, and gala dresses. Afterward, guest Happy Rockefeller told reporters of the show, quote, There were many perfectly heavenly things, and it was in excellent taste. Unquote. And Nancy White said that the show was, quote, one of the greatest things that ever happened to American fashion, unquote. unfortunately, not everyone agreed, starting with the American designers whose designs had not been included in the show. The larger critique of the show, though was from people upset that the first lady was focused on fashion while American troops were dying in Vietnam. Lady Bird's advisors had been suggesting a fashion show for years before she agreed, but the timing ended up being terrible. Coming in the midst of the Tet Offensive, a series of violent attacks by the Viet Minh and North Vietnamese armies. In the week of February 11th to 17th, 1968, just prior to the fashion show, the U.S. suffered its largest single-week loss of life in the conflict, with 543 American deaths, causing many Americans to turn against the war. As one letter to Lady Bird read, Have you given up highway beautification for fashion shows? How much longer do you all in the White House expect to insult our hardcore servicemen both in Vietnam and those poor suckers imprisoned in Korea, unquote. A month later, on March 31st, 1968, LBJ announced that he would not seek re-election. There was never again a fashion show at the White House. Joining me now to tell the story of the 1968 White House fashion show is fashion historian, Dr. Kimberly Chrisman Campbell, author of Red, White, and Blue on the Runway, the 1968 White House Fashion Show, and the Politics of American Style, which was the source for much of this introduction. Hi, Kimberly. Thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you, Kelly. It's great to be here. Yes, I am thrilled to be talking about the White House Fashion Show. It's a super exciting topic. So I want to hear a little bit about how you even knew about this topic to to write about, how you you got into this subject.
1: I've had it completely by accident. I've been working for a long time on a project on a designer called Chester Weinberg, who was one of the Designers featured in the fashion show. And I was reading an interview with him in his archive from a newspaper that said, Oh, and he just got back from Washington where he participated in the first ever White House fashion show. And I thought, oh, I've never heard about that. I've, I've studied fashion my entire life pretty much. And should I know about this? Does everybody know about this? And I'm the last person to hear about it. And I made sort of a mental note to go back and flesh that out for a footnote. And eventually that footnote grew into a book and got published before the actual book it was supposed to be put out in.
0: So listeners will know that I love this kind of micro history, this, you know, focused on one event or one day. But I want to hear a little bit about how you do research on something like that. I assume since this happened in the White House, that there's actually a fair amount of sources. But you know what, how do you figure out what to include, what not to include when you're looking at this kind of project?
1: Well, once I started digging into this, little mention in one newspaper article, I found out there were a bunch of other newspaper articles about it. It was very famous in its time. And in fact, people thought this was going to be an annual event that was going to be repeated over and over. Um, And of course, it wasn't. And there's some interesting reasons why it wasn't. But I didn't really know where to go looking for more information about this. I thought maybe the White House Historical Association or the National Archives I finally kind of hit paper when I contacted the LBJ library, which in retrospect makes a lot of sense. But it turns out they had a whole host of information about this event that had never been looked at, never been worked on. And as a fashion historian, I'm used to doing very interdisciplinary research. So not just archival materials, but surviving objects, interviews. I knew that the vast majority of people who attended this fashion show had died. Um, It happened in 1968. And I figured some of the models were still alive, but you know they were all kind of teenagers. They probably got married and changed their names. I had no way of tracking them down until a friend of mine, who is uh, or was a curator at the Phoenix Art Museum, heard I was working on this and and emailed me and said, "Oh, by the way, you know one of our supporters here in the Costume and Textile Department modeled in the show. Would you like to talk to her?" And I said, "Yes, of course." Uh, and so I called her and. Had a wonderful conversation. She had all sorts of memories and um, souvenirs that she'd stolen from the White House when she (laughs) went to model there. And at the end, I said, this has been so great. Do you happen to keep in touch with any of the other girls who were in the show? And she said, oh, yes, we were all from the same agency. We have reunions. And so she was able to put me in touch with a bunch more. And then I tracked down a few others who were not with that agency, but who were there And their perspective completely transformed the book because, you know, they were there as teenagers. A lot of them had boyfriends in Vietnam. They were really at the forefront of the the counterculture that was about to change America. And uh, of course, they were also very, very chatty and had lots of gossip about the designers and the first lady and the president. And uh, we're happy to share it with me. So I, I love getting to do some oral history as well as the archival work and the you know, museum work I'm used to. Uh, there are about 10 garments that were on the runway of the White House that survive in museum collections. So I tracked down as many of those as I could and included them in the book. Yeah, that's excellent.
0: So, I, you know, I imagine if you pulled a bunch of people and said, which First Lady hosted the only <sighs> fashion show, they probably wouldn't guess Lady Bird Johnson. So let's talk a little bit about her kind of complicated relationship with fashion.
1: Yeah. You know, Lady Bird, we have to remember, um, never expected to become First Lady. She was she was Second Lady and was quite happy doing that. And it was a bit of a shock to the system when suddenly she found herself thrust into the national spotlight as First Lady. She was not a big fan of fashion. She called it frou-frou. She was from Texas. You know, she grew up on a ranch. She had a reputation as being kind of dowdy. And of course, anybody who had to stand next to Jackie Kennedy at events would probably get that reputation. Of course, she was older. She was old enough to be Jackie's mother. She really loved and admired uh, Jackie Kennedy, but she did not try to compete with her in any way. And it took her many years in the White House to realize that not only was the first lady expected to dress in a certain way, but that American fashion was worth supporting and celebrating. It was America's fourth largest industry at the time. So it was very important for the First Lady to show her support for what was a major part of the American economy.
0: Could you talk a little bit about, uh, it it turns out that LBJ had very strong feelings about what his wife and daughters should be wearing?
1: (laughs) Oh, not just his wife and daughters, but his staff, his secretary. I mean, he would unashamedly tell women what to wear he would give his employees time off to get their hair done he was very concerned with appearances and he had very strong taste in fact the day I showed up at the LBJ library to begin my research the archivist took one look at me and said oh he would have hated that dress (laughs) because I was wearing purple uh which was not a color he liked at all that is so great
0: (laughs) What is happening in, obviously, a lot's happening in 1968, but what's happening in the
1: world of fashion around this time? What what does that look like? Well, this show gives you a perfect snapshot of everything that was happening in fashion in America in 1968. And it was going in some interesting directions. You had sort of the old guard of the the very high-end designers like James Galanos and Bill Blass and Jeffrey Bean, but then also all of these junior labels that were Uh, The new boutique lines, designers were starting to branch into what we would now call fast fashion, really. It was inexpensive, designed for a younger clientele. The skirts were very short. The fabrics were kind of cheap. And all of it was brought together on the runway in a way that didn't really happen in fashion magazines at the time.
0: Yeah, and you took some in the the book. I hadn't realized this, but there were sometimes labels where a, a designer who would later become famous would be designing first for another label. Could you talk about what's happening there with uh, designers and and fashion labels?
1: Yes, well, Jeffrey Bean was really the first designer to break free of this old system and and put his own name on the label. Up until the early 60s, designers were employed by giant manufacturing houses whose names were on the label. So people like Teal Traina or Herbert Sondheim, labels that we don't really recognize today, but who had major designers behind them. Townley, for example, is where Claire McCardell designed. You won't find Claire McCardell's name on a label. It will always say Townley because that was her employer. So that was beginning to change in the 60s. And by 1968, quite a few designers had gone solo and started their own labels, some of which failed pretty quickly because these were designers and not businessmen.
0: So of course, it's not Lady Bird's idea to have this fashion show. So let's talk about how it actually came to be that there was a fashion show at the White House.
1: Well, going through the archival records, I discovered that this whole show came together in about two weeks. It was a really fast process, and it just shows you how organized and how influential the White House was, that they could pull this together in a very short amount of time. That said, however, the idea for the fashion show had been around for a couple of years. It was the journalist Nancy Dickerson who cooked up the idea together with Bess Abel, who was the First Lady's social secretary. They were friends. Dickerson was an old Johnson family friend from Texas, and they were they were both two extremely fashionable women who had a lot of contacts in the fashion world. And they were pushing the first lady to do something involving the fashion industry for about two years on and off before the show actually happened.
0: So what was it then that, that got her finally to agree? Was there one thing or was it just sort of a preponderance of them bugging her? <laughs>
1: That's a great question. I I think they wore her down over time, but also what happened in February 1968 was the National Governors' Convention, when all of the state governors would come to Washington and to meet with the president, and many of them brought their wives. And the first lady had to come up with something to entertain these women while their husbands were off having meetings with the president. And I think that was what gave uh, the excuse for finally doing this fashion show. And of course, if you look through the Johnson Library Papers, uh, there's a folder two inches thick of fashion show invitations that the First Lady and her daughters received. It was extremely common, in fact, very predictable for any women's group to have a fashion show luncheon to raise money or celebrate an occasion. This happened all the time. It was it was just what women did uh, who, who did not work with their time. They went to fashion shows and luncheons. So the First Lady had been invited to a lot of these. It wasn't you know, rocket science to throw a fashion show. However, in in practice, she and her daughters always turned down these invitations because A, they were very busy and B, if they turned down one, they would have to, they, they would offend somebody if they accepted a different one. So they had to be very careful about their social engagements. And often the first lady would donate a door prize to a fashion show she was invited to, even though she wouldn't actually go.
0: Yeah, it was funny when I uh, was reading about how common it was to have fashion shows. I recall I grew up in the 80s and I actually was in a fashion show in the 80s because that's still in, at least in suburban Ohio, what you did, <laughs> was, had fashion shows. Uh, so yes, I, <laughs> it took a while for that uh, trend to die down, I think.
1: <laughs> well, and I found a, a video um, in the Johnson Library archives of the first lady on a trip to California a couple of years before the White House fashion show. And on the jet, a a friend of the president's who owned a department store in San Francisco had arranged a fashion show in flight. And I talk about this in the book. uh, And and there is one moment in this video where our film, it's it's newsreel footage, where the model kind of opens her jacket and she's wearing red, white, and blue striped top underneath. And the idea of red, white, and blue uh, uh, on the runway kind of came from that, where we know Mrs. Johnson went to a fashion show on an airplane where there was this sort of moment of red white and blue and she clapped she, she you could see her kind of laughing and clapping it's it's a silent uh, film but she's obviously very impressed by this so I wonder if that may be stuck in her head and it set the set the tone for the fashion show that happened at the White House years later.
0: yeah, so let's talk about that tone because. It seems like they're trying to do an awful lot in this fashion show all at Absolutely. once. <laughs> so, Absolutely. <laughs> how did they decide what, who all was going to be there, what all was going to be there, what they were going to
1: showcase? Well, it was a struggle. And remember, they only had a few weeks to pull this together. So a lot of drama was compressed into a, a very small amount of time because the First Lady staff, of course, was on the ground and they were making a lot of the logistical arrangements for the show. But the actual fashions were chosen by a committee of fashion editors. And Eleanor Lambert, who was an influential fashion publicist in New York and who was also a friend of the Johnson's and served on you know, presidential committees and such. So it was two um, Washington-based fashion editors, Nancy White from Harper's Bazaar. They are, they are the women who sort of called in all the clothes and decided, yes, we're going to show these fashions. They originally wanted 50 garments and they ended up with about 85 because obviously it was very hard to narrow it down. And they only had about half an hour to do this show. So it it was a lot. And the First Lady and her staff uh, wanted this fashion show theme to be Discover America, which was Lady Bird Johnson's pet cause, um, trying to encourage domestic tourism at a time when many Americans could suddenly afford to go to Europe and spend their tourism dollars there. So she was very interested in getting Americans excited about America. And of course, she was not a fashionista. She wanted to show practical clothes, travel clothes, things that were good looking, but not necessarily high end. And of course, that's not what was happening in fashion at the time. That wasn't the fashion editor's priority. They wanted very avant-garde clothes, very high end clothes. So there was this constant struggle and push and pull. And quite a few of the designers who ended up in the show were actually designers who dressed the first lady. So she clearly had an influence there, but they also brought in some of the big names in fashion and some some of the smaller names who were really making clothes for teenagers who were not in the audience that day. A lot of the guests said, you know, that might work for my daughter or my granddaughter, but it's not for me.
0: <laughs> so uh, you mentioned the, the red, white and blue or, or the, you know, stripes on the plane. And so there's a section of this fashion show where they're doing red, white and blue clothes that must have been difficult to find, especially, you know, designers aren't designing for this show. They're just finding clothes that already exist.
1: Absolutely. And it it kind of showed that it was a bit awkward. But when I started researching the show, I thought the entire show was red, white and blue, because if you look at any of the media coverage of it, that's all you see. But in fact, that was only the first section of, of four sections of the show and the Organizers clearly struggled to find enough red, white, and blue clothes to put together a whole section. This was a very eclectic mix of designers; just whoever was doing red, white, and blue got in that section, and it, it was it was very photogenic. Obviously, uh, they had a scarf design for the occasion by Frankie Welch, who went on to become a major scarf designer based in Alexandria. And she made a red, white, and blue scarf that had kind of a map of America. And it said Discover America on it. And they used that scarf in that first section. It was on hats. It was on umbrellas. The models were wearing it. So that was a big part of tying together all these somewhat random red, white, and blue clothes. But the more I started digging into the history of the fashion show, I realized, okay, the red, white, and blue was only, you know, the first 10 minutes or maybe even less. Then they went on to travel clothes festival fashions they called them which was sort of for going out to theaters and events and then they ended with evening gowns and the evening gowns were a big hit with the political ladies in the audience
0: so the other people in the audience besides the governor's wives were the designers themselves or at least some of the designers themselves so talk to me a little bit about what what they were trying to do there
1: well, this had to be a very pro USA event. So this was all about American design and Seventh Avenue. Of course, not all of those designers were born in America. Many of them had emigrated, were working in New York, but weren't actually, you know, native native to America. So it was slightly broader than it than it might sound. Uh, and there there were, oh gosh, I, I I want to say more more than fifty designers involved. It was it was a big group. A few a few exceptions and. It, the White House decided to invite all of these designers to the show, or at least most of them. And many of them ended up not being there at the last minute because there was a snowstorm in <laughs> New York the day of the show, and they all their flights all got grounded. Several did show up, but there was a lot of last-minute rearranging of seating charts because many of the designers that were coming from New York ended up getting stuck. And we're very sad about it. They They were absolutely gutted that they missed their big chance to have lunch at the White House. Their one chance, and so
0: for the the models too. Presumably, for most of them, this is the one and only time they were at the White
1: House. So, tell me about their memories of that day. Well, it, it was great to hear their memories. Even the ones who were very anti Vietnam and didn't necessarily like the Johnson administration were thrilled to be at the White House and, and really uh, treasured their memories. Like you said, many of them stole things from the White House and have kept them. Fifty five years later, they they remember this as a highlight of their career. A few of them don't. For a few of them, it was just another day at the office or maybe it's just so long ago. They don't remember it that well. You know, they, they traveled a lot. They did a lot of glamorous events. But many of them talked about how special it was to be at the White House, to shake the president's hand, to be in that room. And the designers as well talked about what a thrill this was. So these are, you know, jaded New York fashion celebrities who were so touched to be included in this and who were so excited to see their clothes on a runway in the state dining room of the White House.
0: Yeah. So in the state dining room. So let's talk about this because the uh, White House, of course, does not have a standing runway. <laughs> <I know. laughs> so how in the world, inside the White House, did they create this fashion show? They built
1: a runway, which I believe they they borrowed from a department store. They borrowed a lot of things from department stores locally in Washington, like mirrors and racks of clothes and ironing boards. They had all that. The fittings were done the night before. In the Lincoln bedroom, the Queen's <laughs> bedroom upstairs. So, you have, there are pictures of the Lincoln bedroom just stuffed with racks of clothes and tables of jewelry and shoes. And all the models were kind of running around there the night before, trying things on and swapping outfits. They had a rehearsal in the state dining room the day of the show in the morning, a full dress rehearsal. And then everybody went into the red room and the blue room to get dressed while the luncheon guests filed in. So it was a very tight schedule. it It, it came to vander very quickly. and uh, it, it was it was a lot of work for a lot of different people working behind the scenes and for the models who were there until very late the night before, you know, trying to get their outfits organized. And of course, back then models did their own makeup., uh, they had hairdressers on site that they brought in for the show, but the models had to bring their own girdles, their own hair pieces, their own makeup. And so they're kind of running around trying to get dressed. The Secret service is trying to search their bags and, you know, finding all sorts of exotic lingerie. <laughs> and they had a lot of great stories about just, you know, the 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 chaos backstage and and trying to get get prepared for this show. some some of them there there was one outfit that that never actually made it on the runway because they were changing clothes so fast and going out there that you know she she missed her her turn and had to kind of come out at the end. So you mentioned they uh, shook the
0: hand of the president, but he he didn't go to the show itself.
1: He stopped by the lunch to make an appearance, and he he shook hands with some friends and gave his daughter a mm-hmm. kiss and sort of made made the rounds. And then he went backstage where the models were still getting dressed to greet them. <laughs> that sounds very LBJ. <laughs> yes, and and he uh, you know shook hands with them and he said, "It's so nice to see so many pretty girls at the White House." And then he went upstairs to take a nap. He missed the show because he wanted to take a nap. He had a busy day with the governors and had had more meetings to go to. They also they also had a uh, a party that night for the governors. So he had a, a long day. All
0: right. So you said earlier that uh, there are lots of reasons that this didn't happen again. So let's talk about that. Why Why was this the one and only show <laughs> fashion show at the White House?
1: Well, as I said, this had been in the works for about two years by the time it finally happened. Um, unfortunately, it finally happened. At the worst possible time, right in the middle of the Tet Offensive. And I got my first clue as to how big of a problem this was, but I went to the LBJ library and I was in the photo department trying to find the negatives from February 29th. And the archivist told me, well, they're all in a folder, but you can't see it right now because we have another scholar here working on the Tet Offensive and he's got all the negatives from that day. And I thought, okay, so there, there were other things going on in the world at this time that that may have had a factor in its reception. And and in fact, uh, the White House got hate mail about this, saying, how dare you have a fashion show while our boys are dying in Vietnam? And it ended up being um, really bad optics. It was meant to be a very positive, um, morale-boosting PR stunt, and um, really backfired because the timing was so bad. And there was no way they could have predicted that uh, when they started planning the show and when they started talking about the show. Nobody knew that, you know, the week before the show would be the highest death count yet in Vietnam. Yeah.
0: And of course, 1968 has a
1: lot going on, shall we say. (laughs) Absolutely. Everything that happened in the 60s happened in 1968. (laughs) And this was just the beginning. This was still February. Um, Nobody knew how bad it was about to get. But there are clues. If you look at the runway and, and you look at the extremes of fashion, you know, catering to younger people and to a more conservative audience. It was going in a lot of different directions and trying to be a lot of different things to different people. It was just a month after the fashion show that LBJ announced he would not run for re-election, which was a big surprise. And it was because of several, um, you know, PR failures, including this one, that he ended up being seen as, as the bad guy. And that's how Richard Nixon got elected. Yeah,
0: probably not surprising that the Nixons didn't host a uh, fashion show.
1: <laughs> no, I and and you know, even though the people who went to the show thought this was going to be the first of many, it would become an annual event, they quickly stopped talking about it. It it was forgotten pretty quickly after the initial flurry of glowing news articles about this amazing event.
0: You mention in the book how both presidents and first ladies really need to be careful about what they wear and that they usually wear Closed by American designers, made in America, uh, right up until the Trumps, and and you said that you know of all the norms that the the Trumps broke, that this was one that sort of gets swept under the rug. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, for me as a
1: fashion story, that was always extremely shocking because the one rule about first lady and presidential fashion that has been true since George Washington's inauguration is that you you buy American, you wear American. George Washington went to ridiculous lengths to have American-made wool woven for his inaugural suit. Because at the time, that that was very hard to find, a, a high-quality American broadcloth um, that could compete with something imported from England. Uh, yet he did it. And he sort of set the tone for many generations of presidents. It's always been very controversial for a First Lady to wear a foreign designer. And often when she does, it's because... Of diplomatic reasons, for example, you know, the French president is coming, so she wears Chanel. Or when Jackie Kennedy went to Paris uh, as first lady, she got to wear French designers, finally, because it was a a tribute to the hosts. But, you know, Michelle Obama, when she wore an Alexander McQueen gown to a state dinner, the Council of Fashion Designers of America, the body that you know helped organize this fashion show, issued a press release saying, you can't do this. this. This is not right. Where's your support for American designers? And suddenly, with the Trump administration, you know, amid many other norms sort of falling by the wayside, that that went too, and and nobody seemed to notice or care. I mean, I, I cared, uh, but there were many other more important issues to to uh, care about at that time. So this this seems to have come back a bit with the Biden administration. Joe Biden's wearing a lot of Oscar de la Renta. Uh, even Kamala Harris has. Ward's wonderful Black American designers for the uh, inauguration, for example. So I do see that effort returning, and I I hope people will pay attention. Yeah.
0: So let's talk about your book itself. You have a ton of photographs in here, and I know that that's difficult to uh, get done in a book. So can you talk a little bit about the, the production of the book itself?
1: Well, photographs are very difficult in books, and I've struggled with this in all my books. However, I learned that anything in A presidential library or the National Archives of the Library of Congress is the property of all Americans. You don't need to get copyright permission to use it or pay for it in the way you do with many other types of images. So that made things much easier for me. However, uh, this book did go into production during the pandemic, and the Johnson Library was shut down for almost a year. And the poor archivists, trying desperately to help me, but literally were locked out of their building and their collections. So I am so grateful to a lot of people, both at Johnson Library, and the National Archives, who went to extreme lengths to make sure I could get the photos I needed for this book. I had, had a lot of a lot of favors done that I, I so appreciate.
0: Yeah, and they're they're wonderful photos. I, I just really enjoy looking at them. And I think it's so it tells you so much about the event, but also about 1968, just to see these fashions. <laughs>
1: Yeah, they're a lot of fun. Um, it, it's a great period in fashion, and, and, and was really fun to d- dig into. Yeah. So, uh, how can people get a copy of the book? Well, it's published by Kent State University Press, and you can get it on Amazon or wherever books books are sold. Yeah, there's also a lot of material in the book that you you can find on YouTube. For example, all those newsreels are on the Johnson Library YouTube channel. As well as their website, many of them you you can find. In fact, a lot of the the documentation has also been digitized. Uh, it wasn't when I first started working on the book, but since it has been, so you you can do do your own research and look into some of the uh, photos I couldn't couldn't fit into the book. Although I I did get most of them in in the end. <laughs>
0: Can you talk to you a little bit about the, the other books that you've written? Usually you're not doing this kind of micro-history. Usually you're doing a, a broader sweep of history. So can you talk a little bit about uh, those books?
1: Well, I do love a micro-history, actually. <laughs> but I started out working on 18th century French fashion and in The Reign of Louis XVI. That was my first book. And one thing I keep coming back to is this theme of fashion and politics. Whether we're talking about the French Revolution or 1968 America, that's something that always Gets me really excited because they don't go together very easily, and they're they it often reveals sort of cracks in the system and uh, other other tensions beyond just the fashion world. I also did a book called Worn on This Day: The Clothes That Made History, which goes through every day of the year with a garment or an outfit worn on that day in some year in history. Uh, it's it's a nonlinear history, but it, I felt like by narrowing it down to that extremely specific uh, microhistory, you could tell wider stories in a way that doesn't often happen in fashion books, which tend to be, here's what happened in this decade, in this decade, in this decade. Fashion changes over the decades, but it also changes through the seasons. And the the intersection of fashion and history is something that I've, I've long wanted to write about, but it's very hard to explain. And I had to show it. And I think that that book does it very well. And by narrowing in on this extremely focused criteria, what, namely that we have to know the date something was worn, it allows you so much freedom. Um, you're not confined to one country or one class or one time period. It, it really allowed me to take a much broader and more inclusive view of history that, than I could do at a different, more traditional type of book.
0: And then you have a book about weddings, too.
1: That's right. The wedding book is sort of a sequel to Worn on This Day because, of course, most wedding gowns that survive or wedding photos that survive do have a date attached to them. So I ended up finding a bunch of wedding pictures and wedding garments that I just couldn't use and worn on this day and thought, well, this, this actually could be a book on its own. Um, the history of wedding fashion is something I never thought I would write about. You know, white people in white dresses. It's It's been done so much and there's not much to say about it. But actually, there's much more than, than white people in white dresses. I looked at grooms, wedding parties, guests. Royal weddings, presidential weddings, wartime weddings was one of my favorite chapters. I talked about what you wear when you when you get remarried, which for about 100 years was a very specific category of clothing that doesn't really exist anymore. If you want to get remarried today, wear the big white dress. You're fine. But for a long time, that wasn't fine. And that that ended up being a whole chapter in the book because there were so many very interesting and creative solutions to getting married when you don't have the freedom to wear what a bride traditionally wears. And I think weddings are are so fraught with conflict and drama when you talk about joining two people and two families and two cultures, that clothing does a lot to mitigate that, that we maybe don't really appreciate because we're so used to it. But it's actually an extremely powerful form of, of communication and community building. Yeah. And
0: then your most recent book, of course, is Skirts.
1: Yes. Yes. And right after the White House book was published, I, I published a book called Skirts, Fashioning Modern Femininity in the 20th Century. It's very easy to dismiss skirts as something old-fashioned and retrograde and even oppressive to women. But it was actually only in the late 1970s that pants became acceptable in most Of American life. I mean, they were banned from restaurants. They were banned from schools. They were banned from workplaces. Sure, women wore them, but they tended to be women like Marlena Dietrich, Catherine Hepburn. If you think of the, you know, the great pants-wearing icons, you know, Coco Chanel in the twenties. These were extremely wealthy, privileged women. So not only did they have a bit more social freedom, but they had their pants custom made. That's why they they looked good and they fit well. Um, It was very hard to actually buy pants that looked good and and fit a wide range of sizes for a long time. So you can't ignore skirts if you're talking about twentieth century history. And you can't dismiss them because, you know, all the things that women did in them, whether you know, physical or political, they they, they played such an important part. and I, I I think we we do a disservice not just to the women who wore them, but to the designers who made them. If we think of pants as being the, you know the modern progressive practical garment for women in the twentieth century. It's just that doesn't hold up historically.
0: Is there anything else you wanted to talk about about the
1: fashion show? Well, I, I think a good question. You know that I often get asked is why do we care about any of this? It's fashion. Why does it matter? <laughs> that was kind of Lady Bird's attitude. It's frou-fru, It's clothes. Yeah. You know, why does it matter? Um. Well, it's not just that. It's it, it's communication. It's you know, it's optics in in modern political parlance. It's something that that was a huge economic engine in 1968, maybe less so today. Um, at, in 1968, 95% of American clothing designers did their manufacturing in the US. It was it was a domestic industry. Today, it's 97% outside the US. It, it's completely flipped, and very few American clothes are actually made here. And uh that's brought a lot of problems with it that some designers are trying to change so it, it's never just clothes and I think that that when you when you bring politics into the mix, you discover very quickly that okay people do care about this it does mean something perhaps more than we anticipated. The first lady's office was shocked that this fashion show wasn't received as you know a a, a highlight of American history and that not only were people mad about the timing and the, the fact that the war was going so badly, they were mad about things like, well, you didn't have any, any models from my city, or you didn't show enough slides of my city backstage. There were all these somewhat petty issues that they did not anticipate being a problem because they thought they were celebrating American fashion. And it turns out they actually offended a lot of people along the way.
0: Kimberly, thank you so much. This was uh, a really fun topic to to get to read about and to talk about. So I really appreciate you
1: joining me. Oh, I'm so glad you enjoyed it, Kelly. It's been fun talking with you.
0: Thanks for listening to Unsung History. Please subscribe to Unsung History on your favorite podcasting app. You can find the sources used for this episode in a full episode transcript at unsunghistorypodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio and images used by Unsung History are in the public domain or are used with permission. You can find us on Twitter or Instagram at unsung underscore underscore history or on Facebook at Unsung History Podcast. To contact us with questions, corrections, praise, or episode suggestions, please email kelly at unsunghistorypodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, review, and tell everyone you know. Bye! M-S-W.